0: Feel for medical professionals my mother uh, is a medical professional she's a nurse practitioner and worked in hospitals for her life and i would visit her and i had the same experience like this sterile environment is super depressing and i felt institutionalized i felt like i wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible everything from the lighting to the sound penetration on hard surfaces to the elevator music. I mean just everything' it's just like, what's going on? yeah. there's just these simple lessons about design that just seem to not be brought into this environment. And I feel for medical professionals because that's your workplace. You know this is like workplace design 101 seems to have been thrown out the door in favor of the system operating like an efficient machine.
1: Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host Bon Ku. Today's guest is Michael Murphy. He is the founding principal and executive director of Mass Design Group. It's a collective of architecture and design advocates dedicated to the construction of dignity. Since their beginning, Michael's portfolio documents work in over a dozen countries and spans the area of healthcare, education, housing, urban development, food systems, indigenous sovereignty, and the public monument. Watch his 2016 TED Talk. It has nearly 2 million views, and he was awarded the al filipov Medal for Peace and Justice in 2017. Michael teaches a lot. He is the Thomas W. Ventilat Third Distinguished Chair in Architectural Design at Georgia Institute of Technology, the Balmer Visiting Professor at the Ohio State University's Knowlton School, and he has lectured at Harvard's Graduate School of Design, University of Michigan, and Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. Under Michael's guidance, MASS has been awarded globally and featured in over 900 publications. They've racked up some cool awards Uh, recently. They were selected as the 2022 AIA Architecture Firm of the Year. It's a huge award. And they will also feature on CBS on 60 Minutes, one of my favorite shows. They were also recognized as the winner of the AIA 2021 Collaborative Achievement Award and Wall Street's 2020 Architecture Innovator. They have also received the National Arts and Letters Award for 2017 and the 2017 Cooper Hewitt National Design Award. You can also check out his new book. It's called The Architecture of Health, Hospital Design and the Construction of Dignity and visit Design and Healing Creative Responses to Epidemics. It's a new exhibit at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York City. Michael and I geeked out about design and health for so long that we actually made our conversation into two episodes. It's the first time we've done this. Part one will be this week and part two will be next week the best way that you could support design lab is by rating us it's so simple to do and we just found out that spotify allows you to rate podcasts so open up spotify on your phone give us five stars if you don't listen to us on spotify go to apple podcast and give us five stars and if you really love the show you can leave us a comment that really helps. Right now, you can only do that on Apple Podcasts. We got a new comment this past week from the pharmacist who loves design. They said, what I love about this podcast is they look at healthcare from many different lenses. As someone who works in healthcare, it is refreshing to listen to. Thank you so much for that comment. Also, we have a newsletter that comes out. You could sign up for the newsletter by going to the link on our Twitter account. The Twitter handle is at Design Lab Pod. Now, here's my conversation, part one, with Michael Murphy. Michael Murphy, welcome to Design Lab. Ron, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm like... Your number one doctor fan, I think of Mass Design Group. You know, we first met in 2016. I just want to get a trophy for that, if that's possible. I've been following your work for a while.
0: You're my number one doctor fan, so you've been holding the candle to pulling design and health together so well. So we're, you know, just grateful
1: to talk to you and all you're doing. I did some research on you, and I discovered that you were an English major at the University of Chicago, and that you liked Renaissance poetry. And I did not know that about you. I didn't know you were such a nerd. Because University of Chicago, that's a hard school. I i actually did not get into University of Chicago. And I went to like some no-name school called Penn in Philadelphia. How did you make that leap from <laughs> Renaissance poetry at University of Chicago to architecture? Well, I'll just
0: say I was the opposite. I really was aiming towards Penn. And uh, I got into Chicago. So we could have switched roles. So Yeah. No, I mean, um, Chicago is a... One of the great things about Chicago is that they force you to take all these required classes. You know, they teach the classics at Chicago. Something I didn't yeah. fully understand when I was going to.
1: Um, that core curriculum is hardcore. I, I was actually is. a classical yeah. studies major, so I feel like I could relate to you. So you're the nerd that they were <laughs> emulating. Yeah.
0: No, it's a great. It was a great experience, and I always say like the most modern book I learned. It was like Ulysses, <laughs> so everything was pre nineteenth century, you know. <laughs> but uh, I had this incredible course. Uh, one of the required courses I had to take as an English major was was rena- Renaissance and and poetry and and this was an area I wasn't really psyched about studying. I had to check a bunch of boxes, and there was this incredible course led by this professor named Brayden Cormac, who's at Princeton now. is just a brilliant guy. Checked all these boxes. I wasn't looking forward to it. And I went to the course and he just blew my mind with how brilliant and amazing these Renaissance poets were. And I got really immersed in it and ended up really focusing on that as my kind of primary area of focus with my literature degree.
1: And then you decided I could see the relationship between this and architecture. So I'm going to go to Harvard (laughs) and study architecture.
0: Well, you know, I didn't know, actually, it's kind of interesting. I think back about my thesis and I was writing, I was writing about John Donne's devotional poems. And Donne had these <laughs> amazing series of poems that, which were took place in what's called the prayer closet. And there's these like these effusive, beautiful, and deeply personal, sometimes erotic poems to Christ. But within the space of the prayer closet, and my thesis ended up being about how the space of the prayer closet very much sort of demands this self-reflection and internalization. And I realized later it's a very architectural thesis, you know, that the, mm. the place of isolation expects of us our own kind of reckoning with ourselves, with our own identity, and how we kind of locate ourselves within the vastness of the unknown. And, um, you know, thinking, thinking back later now, uh, as an architect, it's very much about how space can shape behavior or shape reflection. And Ooh. so there is the link, even tenuous. I think there is. A link.
1: <laughs> I love that. So you wrote a brand new book with Jeffrey Mansfield. It's called The Architecture of Health, Hospital Design, and the Construction of Dignity. I'm holding up here. And I'm such a nerd that both you and, and Jeffrey both signed it. So I actually have a signed copy, which I'm totally stoked. And you work with the amazing Pamela Horn from the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum to publish your yeah. book. Pamela, I know very well. She, we I get to work with her for the first edition of my book and the second edition, which is coming out. So she is amazing. And I've been pouring into this book and I want to talk about, there's so much I want to get into. You talk about this design principle that buildings must provide access to uncontaminated air. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on why the modern hospital has violated this principle. Hmm.
0: Well, let me just pull back one second,
1: affirm your
0: compliments because Pamela Horne is an absolute genius and one of the greatest people I've ever worked with. So I just want to give her a shout out and a big shout out to my co-author, Jeff Mansfield, who is just one of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with. And Also, my team at Mass Design Group did so much work on the book as well, so they deserve a lot of credit. But there's a lot of people behind this thing, and it's been years in in process getting this thing out there. So I'm really happy it's published and it's out there. Yeah, I think your question about access to uncontaminated air and like what has gone wrong is kind of ever-present in all of our minds right now at this unique inflection point in, I would say, the history of buildings, the history of mm-hmm. architecture, the history of public health. We're in the middle of this pandemic, and we're going through this collective spatial awakening that the buildings around us are you know, keeping us from getting access to uncontaminated air or allowing us to breathe more effectively. And that notion that air is modulated by the buildings around us, I think, is seeping into the public consciousness globally, mm-hmm. all Kind of simultaneously, that's a really big, significant change. I think in our consciousness that buildings are not these passive, you know, vessels in which we enter or exit and live and you know do work and connect with other people. They are living agents in our ability to get access to something as fundamental as um, as fresh air, which, as we know, is not equally distributed in the mm. world. And I, I say that. Not to belabor this point, but I think that collective consciousness is something that hospitals have always, or at least for the last 150 years, have been thinking critically about in their design. And so Mm -hmm. returning to hospitals with that, with that recognition in mind that the buildings are performing in such a way to modulate or perform in, in such a way to allow access to better breathing, we look. We can look at hospitals as these, these sort of design engines for what we might do in the future as we come out of this pandemic. So places where we learn can learn a lot from looking at the how they've wrestled with the same question for so many years.
1: As someone who's been working in the emergency room in a hospital in Philadelphia all throughout this pandemic, I can't tell you how many times I wish my patient room had a freaking window because there's not enough of these negative pressure isolation rooms. And once we found out that coronavirus was airborne and I'm taking care of patients in these closed rooms, these small rooms and a patient's coughing and it's not a negative pressure isolation room. And this isn't something that's just a problem with my hospital, but it's a problem with every hospital out there. There's just not enough of these negative pressure isolation rooms. And if I could just have a window that open and put a a fan that I bought on target from there that blew out the exhaust, I would have felt so much more safe. And why is this? How come we can't even have freaking windows in hospitals that open up? There's
0: this amazing inflection point that happened in the mid-century with the introduction of mechanical systems that we could control air and i talk about this in the book but the, the first real mechanically ventilated building truly mechanically ventilated was a hospital and that was the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast which was designed around the mechanical movement of air how do we deal with patients how do we get air moving in a in a more effective way how do we have how do we deal with more patients oh if we can mechanically ventilate we can stack more patients into a hospital that kind of thinking that the machine would allow us to increase the amount of service and access to healthcare that we could provide, turn the institution into something bigger and more like, effective for a larger population health crisis, immediately shifts our thinking, or at least designers thinking to how do you mechanically ventilate air. Mm. And in the mid-century, that takes on its own, kind of its own dominance over buildings, all building types, but in particular hospitals. And what happens is the building floor plate shifts. It goes from a thin floor plate where it's all designed around windows and air movement through them, the Nightingale Ward, to a floor plate that could take over entire city blocks or multiple city blocks, which you can only mechanically ventilate because there's not enough access to windows in the perimeter of the building. And that change is, I think, where we lost our way in a huge sense because we're now completely reliant. Your rooms are completely reliant on the mechanical system working effectively. And designed for a certain air change per hour, which is not sufficient for something like the COVID outbreak. Yeah. And so we've turned these buildings into machines, into huge technological operational machines. And we've designed out one of the most effective and simple strategies that make them function uh, well, which is the ability to modulate your own airflow through the opening of you know, an aperture or a penetration in the wall itself. And in
1: healthcare... I feel like we're always bootstrapping solutions. We're always responding in real time instead of having this ability to look at the f- a future state and design our way there. And so we have all this pp for individuals. As a doctor, I wear an n95 in a face shield with still now with every patient encounter. And, but you think about. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of like designing PPE for hospitals <laughs> that you're providing by this natural ventilation. In, in your book, you talk about the Butara Hospital in Rwanda that Mass Design Group uh, built as a case study for natural ventilation. Can you spe- speak on that design and how we can provide PPE for the environment?
0: Yeah, I, I think actually I'll, I'll answer that. In in a way, kind of infection control theory, you know, like when you have infection control specialists who are trying to develop strategies to reduce infection, you know, they think about it at three scales. There's personal protection, that's of course PPE, we all know that very well, face mask, you can only protect yourself. There's environmental protection, which is the building's performance to reduce transmissible rates of infectious disease, especially that's airborne. And then there's the scale of like policy, like how we, how many people are allowed into a room or like kind of protocols and systems that we can maintain sort of a bigger environment around the institution. And I think it's telling that we're so reliant on personal protection right now to survive. Like that says something that our environmental protocols, the ones that are our buildings, all of our buildings that are designed around have basically all failed. And Mm. that's not just at the hospital, it's at the apartment building, at the school, at the workplace. And so the personal protection is the last barrier, but we are really, ideally, we should be aiming towards environmental controls where we don't need masks in more spaces because we can trust the environment to protect us. So I think we're really kind of at the at the last line of defense and we should be aiming towards something that's a little bit more that we both can understand and believe as you said trust like the fan in the window i trust that that room yeah. is going to have enough airflow i can see it i can visualize it i feel safe that i can be in there with a mask or without a mask and and not feel like i'm being at risk so i think that's a really important shift that's going to happen and or has to happen as we come out of this is recognizing the difference between personal protection and environmental protection.
1: Yeah. Environmental protection is kind of like a immunization for buildings. You know. Yeah, I like
0: that. I like that notion and if the public consciousness is able to start to read buildings along that way of thinking, how are they helping protect us? We start to demand. We'll start to demand a much higher expectation from how buildings both perform and function, but also how we visualize and can understand through you know, legible monitoring or protocols or signage or visible windows what we should expect from spaces in which we're spending you know, most of our lives.
1: How did you solve for this in the Butaro Hospital in Rwanda?
0: Yeah, we, you know, our first building ever, which was the Batara Hospital, we designed with the Ministry of Health of Rwanda and Partners in Health, the incredible nonprofit um, organization, uh, faced this very issue, but this was in 2008 and nine. And the issue then was tuberculosis, another airborne disease, aerosolized, transferred through the airborne route. And of course, in the the early 2000s, the issue was called multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, which is now you're going to be able to explain to the listeners much better than I can. But basically, as it, as in its name, tuberculosis, which largely had been solved or addressed through environmental strategies like sanatoria and drug regimen in the mid-century, but intensive drug regimen, caused started to uh, mutate into resistant strands that then became a kind of epidemic around the world, especially for resource-limited areas where patients couldn't continue their drug regimen. So they were transmitting drug resistance strands. And that's super dangerous. And Mm -hmm. it was being transmitted in buildings, in hospitals, in the hallways and spaces that weren't ventilated, that weren't thought about for the design of infection control. And so, so
1: so if you're a patient who did not have TB, you could actually get infected with TB by going into a hospital with TB patients. And you're going there for something entirely different. Like I, I fractured my, my arm. Yeah,
0: exactly. And in a particular and it broke out in South Africa, it was some of the first cases in 2005, 2006, outside of Durban. And there you had a lot of immunosuppressed patients. So patients whose immune systems mm-hmm. were already um, very fragile if they were HIV positive or other things where you know, HIV rates in South Africa are very high, 20, north of 20%. And so that causes this other kind of acute on chronic condition where you Mm. have epidemic on epidemic, and yeah, so that's where it began. And it's not surprising that we're seeing the new Omicron you know variants emerging in South Africa as well. It's a sort of similar Mm. situation. Um, So you know, to answer your question, we designed knowing that we needed airflow, and that at that point, World Health Organization standards were like ten to twelve air changes per hour. We knew we could do this, get enough airflow in a in a patient ward, by looking back at some of the original designs of Florence Nightingale, Alvaralto, Alto, some original designs of sanatoria and, and before air conditioning started to change the design of buildings. And just doing those simple redesigns and learning from the past, we were getting the kind of air change rates per hour that we need now for COVID just by designing a certain amount of window, a certain amount of height in the building, a certain amount of pressure strategies with air movement. And it's it wasn't rocket science, but it's something that I think informed us and me that buildings need to be designed to manage air. That lesson turns out to be really prescient 12 years later as we face this new pandemic.
1: So correct me if I'm wrong, you when designed this building, you actually went back a hundred and like fifty years to Florence Nightingale and those hospitals and looked at this old school technology design. Is, is that right? To think That's about right. the design of that hospital? Like, what made you think of that?
0: Well, it's kind of amazing Florence Nightingale. Well, I think, let me back up. Uh, what made me think of that? Well, we were looking, we were working with doctors. They were the clients and you're a doctor. I mean, sorry about that. No, I mean, the, <laughs> I think I really, res- I, not only do I respect that, I respect the way that medical professionals think, which is evidence-based. Hmm. And one of the Initial questions to us was like, if we were proposing design solutions, the immediate question from the doctors were, well, how does that improve the health of the patient? Tell me how that improves the quality of healthcare provided or the health of the patients directly. So there was just a sort of grounding in every decision. And the one that they kept coming back to was like airflow in, especially waiting areas, was really problematic. This is where patients are getting sick. So they were, their primary strategy was to put people outside. Just wait outside and not indoors, keep people out of the hospital. Yeah. But we knew in cold climates, and it's in Rwanda, it can get cold in the mountains. We needed to look at indoor solutions as well. So we started looking back at sanatoria, Alvaralto's 1930 Paimo sanatoria is a good example, but then even further
1: back, less than- Can you explain what the sanatoria is for those yeah, who may so, not know?
0: Yeah. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a big investment in buildings that would treat patients that had tuberculosis and they put them into these isolated sanatorium. Some of them were like in mountainous climates where you could get what they called the cure, which is like putting people outside and getting fresh air. So Davos, for example, has like, was originally, not just have like a ski town, but it had these sanatoria, had these places where people could go and get healthy from tuberculosis. And what that meant was they would roll them out or bring them out to sit on these lounge chairs and big open air porches in cold climates Mm. and breathe fresh air all through the day. They'd be covered in heavy blankets. And they would also get what they thought was sun therapy. They called heliotherapy. So getting sun and air would help treat this disease. And some of it was successful, you know, obviously as a, as a scientist, as a doctor, you can explain some of the biochemical reasons for that and also where it wasn't successful. But the Mm -hmm. assumption at that moment in time was that worked. and Alvar Alta designed a brilliant one in, in Finland in Paimo that is this very thin building where the entire floor plate is basically about air movement through it. And there's these generous porches where people would sit all day. And that reminded us that even in cold climates, people can be outside, but mm. also that kind of getting the air movement over the bodies was an important piece of like reducing infection. And, and, and that's where you have a lot of what's called air mixing in the outdoor environments. So you're mm. pretty safe. And we know that from COVID today, you can be safe pretty much outdoors because the air mixing yeah. is high. Um, but it's interesting, Florence Nightingale had thought about this early in the 1850s as well. And Nightingale Ward, which she developed after studying hospital designs from the Crimean War, which I can talk about, I talk about in the book, she developed what we call kind of parametric plan, this plan, which was you know, a relationship of windows to patients to staff. And these things are in their intention, they're in relationship. So you can have a room with lots of windows and you could fill it with too many people and you could have an infectious situation. So if you have a room with lots of windows with the right amount of staff and the right amount of patients, it can perform and function well as a sort of organic entity as a hospital. And that those simple ideas on notes and hospitals from the 1850s, I think, carry forward today. It's really important and meaningful stuff.
1: That is amazing. Did you get some pushback from the government saying, hey, why don't you just put air conditioners in these hospitals? Because every other modern hospital has that. And we want to be modern kind of like Western medicine and just put freaking air conditioners in there.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think there is a valid point to say that like comfort and climate management of certain rooms is still something that we don't want to completely ignore. And, you know, I I think the reality, you know, so for like an emergency room, you don't necessarily want air movement, but you want to control the air in it because you want to have a really sanitized space you don't want air particles dust particles coming into the surgical suite so in in that kind of condition you do want a, a highly mechanically ventilated and controlled air environment and i think that's where the science of the science of mechanical systems is really necessary and important i think can be it can be really an agent in the improvement of healthcare delivery and healthcare outcomes but i think when we just blanket spread mechanical systems over every space that we live in prioritizing comfort Mm -hmm. over, over the quality of air, we actually have caused a kind of endemic crisis across the world. And so when we look to the future, I think ideally what we'd like to see is, you know, more of a mixed mode of systems where the places that need mechanical systems and need kind of highly calibrated air negative pressure rooms, you talk about surgical suites, like specifically dangerous areas, we can be really calibrated in those, which can be more mixed mode, can like lean on natural systems again in a much more productive Mm. way. That would be my, that would be, I think, one future that we might aim towards.
1: I love this line from the book. Let me just read it. It says, uh, the block hospital is a sterile instrument, an institution stripped of its humaneness. Why are modern hospitals so soulless. I've spent my entire adult life being in a modern hospital. And uh, Michael, it's depressing just going into a hospital. Everything from going to the front door with security, walking into the emergency room, there's no windows. I'm not going to see sun for the rest of the time. And then it is such a sterile environment. And I guess I've been conditioned to this environment for so long. And then I've had this chance for the past like five years, visiting all these other amazing studios and other companies where they really think about the space. And we were talking about before, the space can influence the behavior of its occupants. I wish we had more soul in hospitals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you bring up really two, you know, two points. I mean, one, I really feel for you and I feel for medical professionals. My mother, Uh, as a medical professional, she was a nurse practitioner and worked in hospitals for her life. And I would visit her and I had the same experience. Like this sterile environment is super depressing. And I felt institutionalized. I felt like I wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. Everything from the lighting to the sound penetration on hard surfaces to the elevator music. I mean, just everything was just like, what's going on? Yeah, There's just these simple lessons about design have just seemed to not be brought into this environment. And I feel for medical professionals because that's your workplace. You now, this is like workplace design 101 seems to have been thrown out the door in favor of the system operating like an efficient machine.
1: because we have all these advanced machines, we have MRIs and CAT scanners, and we have operating rooms that need to be sterile and all these codes and regulations.
0: Yeah, and people's lives are on the line if those things are disrupted. I mean, hospital-borne infections are real, and you can understand why the institution is protecting itself from the risks associated with the kind of things that they cannot control within this environment that has to be a place where people's lives are saved. So that I think that tension between a humane, dignified experience for the patient and the worker, the healthcare professional, and having a machine that functions with incredible efficiency and sophistication is always intention at the hospital. And I think I don't think it's I don't think it's possible to kind of lean one way or the I mean to succeed in one way or the other. I think the tension is the point. And we should be able to start to read I think hospital design as those which manage that tension well. Mm -hmm. Those that can be both a sophisticated Functioning entity, an institution that works while not making you feel institutionalized. And the hospitals that I try to talk about in the book are those which have wrestled with that very issue, trying to introduce human dignity back into the spaces which have, to some degree, institutionalized us, made us feel like we're surrendering to this system that we can't fully understand or control. Mm. And that is the experience of healthcare for a lot of people. It's the experience of going. To the hospital we have a very ambivalent relationship to it sometimes it's like all we want to do is get there when my father was very sick like i would rather be there knowing that doctors are taking care of him no matter what it looked like but on the flip side i could not help but look around the medical room the hallways without windows the offensive lighting and surfaces and say like there's just simple things here that could improve this experience that i've just been ignored or abandoned i'm really yeah. fascinated by that and I think there's a lot of work we need to do in partnership with doctors like yourself who have this kind of, you have a spatial awareness, you have a design awareness that could really inform how we could improve without improve the quality of spaces without reducing the quality of their functionality.
1: Yeah. It seems like we use this excuse of trade-offs of in order to build a high functioning hospital, We lose the beauty of hospitals and you had this awesome 60 minutes episode that you're on. Everyone should check it out. Go to 60 minutes and you talk about beauty matters and that we don't necessarily need to make this. We can insert beauty into hospitals. Can can you speak about that?
0: Yeah, I think that's, it's well put. Thanks, Bon. Uh, You know, we, we have created this, what one architect called a false dichotomy that we can have, you know, either beauty or function, you know, that like it's one or the other. And that's a false binary. In fact, we saw in our own work in the hospital that even though it was designed around functional principles of airflow and air movement, it was the beauty of the intricate stonework of the craftsman who made the facade of the building and the walls of the building that transmitted the, the concept of healing the whole person to people saw it as something that was theirs, that they owned, that it meant that we cared about them as individuals. And I think there's this other piece of healthcare that, I mean, you'll you'll know this and can speak about this better than I can as a healthcare professional, but always wrestling with the bedside manner versus the population health metrics. Like how do we make people feel like they matter as individuals and also that they're getting the right kind of service that we're learning from broader public health data points. And I think that's the case with the hospital as well, where we have to make people feel like both they're getting high functioning, quality care, and that their individual lives matter, that we're serving the whole person and their lived experience, that we're kind of getting to them and not demanding that they come to us. Yeah. And I think design is the connecting point between that. Mm. It's the simple things that design thinks so critically about that experience of what does the chair feel like when you sit down, what's the lighting of the environment while you wait, like how do we create environments that depressurize and de-stress you as a, a professional that how do we create, you know, floors like a maternity floor that allows the, the doctors to, have their stress levels at a rate that they're not, let's say, forcing women into cesarean section unnecessarily or mm. things of this nature. I think all of these things are related, in design is the kind of connecting point. I think between seeing ourselves and our daily experience and seeing our collective experience as something that we're a part of.
1: And how do we humanize that experience for family members? As you know, I'm I'm Korean, and then when someone gets sick, we all, you know, it's kind of a joke, but you know, we all come in in droves and stay with. Our our loved one and Korean people don't like bland food. So we often kind of stake in like rice and kimchi and other stuff. And but we kind of like camp out in the room. I've done that when my family members have gotten sick. I mean, we don't leave until we tell, until the doctors or nurses tell, kick us out. But being in that room, it does not accommodate family members. And so when your family member is sick, you put them into this very dehumanized space and keep them separate from their loved ones. And, and we saw the apex of that during COVID when you are dying in a hospital room alone because we cannot figure out how to keep other people safe when seeing their loved ones. I think there's a huge opportunity here to accommodate loved ones into these dehumanized spaces.
0: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's so many different, both personal and cultural and familial expectations of how we care for each other. And of course, globally, this is very much the condition. There's actually a really cool organization wrestling with this very question in India right now called Nora Health and their amazing founder, Edith Elliott. And they're wrestling with how primary healthcare is still evolving and emerging, especially in new markets. And um, by empowering the family members to be caregivers they are able to like provide a better quality of care and create space for them and also kind of empower them to make decisions about their loved one's care. So it's like that includes like washing their clothes or making food for them or supporting them and being a kind of conduit to the medical professionals. It sort of distributes primary care in a, in a way that's like kind of already happening in communities, especially around the world, but in a way yeah. that kind of gives them support to do so. It's really fascinating.
1: That's so cool. And If you want to learn more, you can look them up, norahealth.org. I remember talking to you, I think it was about like six years ago, and you you were talking about this concept about beauty matters in healthcare. And that was just so foreign to me because people don't think about hospitals and healthcare and beauty. They're not synonymous. They're almost opposites. And I've been thinking a lot about our industrialized healthcare system and how to bring love into healthcare. We we don't talk about that. And I love this concept of bringing beauty into healthcare because if we don't think about that, we it leads to kind of like this dehumanization of its occupants, you know, patients, nurses, uh, doctors.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. The, the beauty is the conduit. It's the conduit to a sense of dignity, that you as an individual matter, that you can find yourself within the vastness of this system, this kind of impossible to navigate, labyrinthine, Byzantine machine, within that machine that you as an individual still matter. That, That moment when you say, this is actually a beautiful space, or like, wow, I'm really happy to be here, or like, this room is gorgeous or like, wow, I seem to be cared for. That feeling that you get at a hotel or at a restaurant that kind of, which by the way, are both coming from the same hospitality and hospital and it's coming from the same etymological foundation. Yeah, uh, you know, Crazy. You know, uh-huh. That These are all the design of hospitality, the design of a sense of radical hospitality, that your individual experience is something that we really care about. I think that is as important as also trying to give people the you know, best care with the best science at the same time, because being able to navigate that system is also feeling like you can, like it's empowering or it's possible, as opposed to just being like on a conveyor belt of healthcare and hoping that you come out the other end. Mm-hmm. So, and I think the space around us when we experience that is one of the most important Easiest, but also kind of—it's the easiest wins. We could like redesign those spaces to be kind of in, be infusing our medical experience as one which seems to matter and seems to care for the entire being and their and, and what they're bringing to these places.
1: And the reason why we feel like a hospital is a human factory is because there's like a historical precedent for this, and you talk about that in your book.
0: Yeah. And you can understand the the shift that happens in the mid-century, the advances in medicine, the incredible heroic work of scientists, the like, I mean, literally saving lives in in so many new and complicated and impressive ways. The, The changes are happening so rapidly in science, in healthcare, in treatment, that the physical structures have a really hard time Keeping up with that evolution, and so we have this other lesson, which is that the building of the medical facility is is this living thing. It's sort of always under construction. if, If you're in your hometown, I'm sure you could kind of echo that that these hospitals around us are like always adding a new building. They're always renovating this thing. They're always changing this, and that's because they're trying to keep the physical space up with the changes in medical treatment and medical care. So it is a it is this balance. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it's not challenging, but I think if we acknowledge that they're always under construction, we acknowledge that the changes are happening and they have to be updated with them, we might design different strategies, more flexible, mm-hmm. more adaptable, more integrated. We might analyze them differently. We might measure them differently. We might be actively monitoring which spaces are working better for different care programs and testing them and doing studies. I mean, there might be a much more active participatory role of the physical environment with the healthcare outcomes that we're seeking, which could allow for improved conditions overall for people in the future.
1: Yeah. I mean, hospitals are a public health intervention. They're billion-dollar structures, often some of the most expensive buildings in a community, and let's hold them liable. <laughs> yeah, you know, let's hold the design of these buildings. Are they really improving outcomes in, in healthcare delivery? next week we will have part two of our conversation it will be the last episode of the year if you want to know more about michael's work you can follow mass design group on twitter their handle is at mass design lab or on instagram at mass design group You can reach out to me by Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram, at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. And remember to rate us on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. And the cover design by Eden Liu.